logistics company, CoreLogic. We'll be talking to Eliza about <laughs> what else? House prices. Eliza Owen, how are you? Yeah, really well. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks for coming on the show. Look, um, everyone's talking about housing. I inflation is up, rents are up, but house prices are down. Uh, how do we square that circle? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think it helps to understand how all of these different pieces kind of fit together, as well as some of the important trends that have driven particularly the rental market in the past year or so. So we know that um, house prices have been through an enormous boom. All up, house prices have been through this upswing of about 28% between August of 2020 uh, and March this year. So the upswing was really driven by interest rates, um, as was a lot of increased economic activity through mm -hmm. the pandemic period, where people thought that actually the uh, economy was going to tank and, um, you know, a, a lot of that was um, uh, didn't occur because of the low interest rate environment. So we get this housing boom, but because the increase in economic activity amid emergency cash rate settings created high levels of inflation, mm -hmm. um, the RBA now has to start focusing on inflation again. Um, the RBA is not concerned with house prices directly. They're not concerned with housing affordability directly. So they're really just looking at using all they have, which is the cash rate, to try and bring that inflation back under control. So core inflation is running at about 4.5% at the moment. They want to bring it back between 2 and 3%. They increase the cash rate. And they've done that for the past uh, four months at, at pretty steep increases, the steepest cash rate increases we've seen since the 1990s. Now, whenever the cash rate moves up or down, right. property prices have an inverse movement. So as the cash rate goes up, property prices inevitably come down. That's because borrowing money becomes less desirable when it's more expensive. And we just think of the cash rate and interest rates as the price of money, right? So the price of money goes up, people are less incentivized to borrow and buy, house prices come down. So not only with those cash rate rises have we seen house prices come down over the past four months, but we've seen properties taking longer to sell. There are way less buyers out there this time of year um, than there were this time in 2021. We're seeing new listings decline because sellers are seeing property prices go down. They don't want to sell right now if they don't have to. Um, and that's where you get the kind of downswing in the property market amid rising rates and inflation. Right. So the other element that's going on, which is a little bit weird right now, is the rental market. Now, rents and yeah. property prices, historically, they'd usually move together, um, but not this time around. We're actually seeing some really interesting demographic trends. So COVID-19, for example, meant that a lot of the renting population spread out. Um, so by that, I mean average household size fell over the course of the pandemic. And if you think about that kind of share house dynamic, a lot of people were thinking, well, rather than 
housemate in the second bedroom, I think actually now I'd like a home office. Okay. So that's where we see that spreading out of domestic demand for rents um, and uh, for, for rental properties and an increase in rental prices. Um, now, on top of that, okay. because that domestic demand for rents shot up, um, rent, rental vacancies are quite tight. We haven't seen as much investment activity in the property market, so that's limited the supply of rentals. But on top of all of that at the moment, we've just relaxed our travel restrictions of a few months ago. So overseas migrants are coming back, overseas students, overseas visitors, they're coming back to Australia as well. And when people come to Australia from overseas, they are typically renters, at least initially, right? So on top of an already tight rental market, we've now got additional rental demand mm -hmm. and relatively low levels of investment housing supply. Uh, and even if we did have a surge in new investors, it takes a while for new properties right. to be built, um, people to conduct their rental campaigns, purchases to happen, things like that. So inelastic supply against right. a, a freaking of, kind of surge in, in demand and, for rental. And some of those new buildings just fall down. So got to account for that too. Yeah, there's been so <laughs> many issues. <laughs> So many issues so, with supply. Yeah, <laughs> I'd like to follow up on something you said, though, which I found really interesting. You, you suggested that people are converting uh, what had previously been you know, rooms people were living in into office space. So that should be reflected in data as being fewer people per housing unit or per, fewer people per square feet living in housing. Is that something that we actually have data on or is that something we're just assuming must be happening? The RBA did do some analysis on this and they produced some of that data. So it was Lucy Ellis, an address that she gave a few months back. And in that, um, her research suggested that the spreading out of rental demand through the, um, um, I guess, de decoupling and um, deconcentration of, of rental households mm -hmm. um, almost completely accounted for the lack of overseas migration that we saw in terms of housing demand through the pandemic period. Okay. That, that's really interesting to hear. Um, I, I saw a piece you did in AB, for ABC News uh, a few months ago now, so I hope you remember. This is back in May. Uh, but the premium of houses over units has apparently doubled in New South Wales in the last, just last two years. Why should all of these factors be changing like, why should houses be becoming relatively more valuable than units? Yeah, great question. And, you know, the house price premium of houses over units is, is starting to decline as, as houses come off the boil a bit quicker than units. But overall, it's a huge premium. It's still something like over $400,000 for your typical house in Sydney than your typical unit. Um, so there were there were a couple of factors going on here. Um, the first, again, was the influence of the pandemic. The fact that people tended to value detached homes because oftentimes housing or detached housing offered uh, land as well, a little more space for people while they were spending more time than ever at home. Um, I also think a big part of it was the composition of buyers that we saw mm -hmm. in the market, where investor demand tends to skew to apartments and attached dwellings, which are more low maintenance, 
owner-occupier purchases do tend to skew towards detached housing. And so because the upswing we've just seen was really an owner-occupier boom, I think that had a lot to do with demand being skewed and concentrated in the detached house segment as well. So with interest rates going up, we'd expect that to flip and go the other way, right? Owner-occupiers would now be discouraged. That's correct. So... Yeah, yeah. So... Oh, sorry. I was just going to say both um, owner-occupiers and investors do seem to be coming out of the market amid higher rates now. That's kind of surprising given what's happening in the rental market. We would have thought the investor segment would be a little more resilient, but it seems both buyer groups at the moment are averse to higher interest costs. Now, we are a live program. We do take viewer questions, and I would encourage your viewers who have a question for Eliza to stick it there in the chat window, and I will feed it through to her live on air here. Uh, But I did have a question emailed to me in advance by Hugh. Um, Hugh wanted me to ask you, will the rising cost of new housing because of supply shortages and uh, labor shortages, cost of new housing seems to be rising. Will that rising cost of new housing overtake the decline in price of existing housing. That that is, how do these two trends interact? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, New housing costs have rocketed over the pandemic period. Obviously, we've had massive supply chain constraints, which has affected the cost of materials, labor market shortages. We've heard stories of um, site, um, people on site literally going to other building um, developments and and sites and trying to poach bricklayers for you know oh, offering really? them twice the rate. Golden age to be a bricklayer. Yeah, just... <laughs> yeah, it's it's absurd. Um, and of course, there was the surge in demand that was encouraged by policies like Home Builder, the First Home Loan Deposit Scheme, New Homes Edition. Um, so, you know, that that massive surge in demand is still making its way through the pipeline. So I think the impact for the housing market between uh, new and established, it, it doesn't necessarily offset the declines because the way uh, we measure home prices is that we're largely capturing established dwellings. Mm-hmm. And it does take a while for those new properties to flow into the data. Um, but I expect that it would have some indirect effect on established properties in the sense that people can't really, uh, you know, they don't want to risk new builds right now. So that potentially offsets some of the decline that we could see in the established market, Um, particularly those established homes that wouldn't need renovations because renovations are also really expensive and project times are blowing out in that space as well. Now, I'm not an economist, but I would like to press you on a bit of a technical question about the Reserve Bank. Um, we all know that you know Reserve Bank rate increases have been blamed for driving people out of the property market. But on the other hand, there's been massive inflation. So in reality, real interest rates have turned strongly negative. I mean, in some sense, the interest rate, if you want to borrow to, to buy a home, is lower than it's ever been, at least the real interest rate, not the nominal interest rate. Uh, So uh, how does that all play out for home buying decisions and for the housing market? It's something that leaves me puzzled. 
It's a good question, and it might have to do with that premium that banks put on top of the underlying cash rate as well. Um, I mean, we sort of estimate that at the current price of homes and and the you know even the the nominal interest rates um, that people would be paying hundreds if not thousands of dollars more on their mortgage a month than before these official rate rises so I guess prices are still at that level that it's deterring right. buyers particularly owner occupiers who don't have that that rental income to to subsidize the um, the costs of uh, taking out the loan as well. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, uh, and, and again, that's evident in the levels of demand that we're seeing. Um, so the amount of sales that we've seen over June this year, mm-hmm. we're about um, 30% below what we observed same time last year. Um, so it's obvious that it, it has created uh, a lot of sensitivity um, and does present a bit of a risk with households as indebted as they are. Okay. Now, as a reminder, we're talking to Eliza Owen, head of Australian residential research at property analytics company CoreLogic. Eliza, I'd like you to pull out your crystal ball. And I know that you must you must get the crystal ball question all the time. Yeah, so please pull it out or your magic eight ball, whatever you have, your Ouija board, uh, because we see a, a whole bunch of trends colliding. You've already talked about the trend towards work from home, uh, which may or may not continue. We don't know if, if companies are going to start insisting people go back to work. We, we see a trend at universities to online education. So many Australian universities, it looks like simply aren't going to return to in-person teaching ever, which means you know, which will have big effects on uh, household formation. That is whether university students stay home or move out and form new households, you know, putting pressure on housing uh, supply. Uh, the rise of Airbnb, the, the rise, crash, and now resumption, I guess, of Airbnb. Uh, so units being turned into Airbnbs, especially in central city areas of Sydney and Melbourne, places like that. Uh, the resumption of migration, which the, the government and the big Australia lobby is very keen to get migration, not just up to pre 2020 levels, but to make up for lost migration during the pandemic. So these are all, uh, if you'll forgive the word, megatrends that have big implications for housing. Um, How do you see all this playing out over the next three to five years? I'm so glad you summarized all of those because I actually have a client meeting later about megatrends. (laughs) So that's given me a good job. I'm $200 an hour. (laughs) Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, um, I, I mean, all of what you've spoken to, I think, points to an upside for the property market. If you've got um, the return of overseas migration, that's inherently more housing demand. In the short term, that manifests as rental demand. And then eventually, I mean, historically, we've seen for permanent migrants that rental demand eventually converts to purchases a few years down the track. Um, the resumption of Airbnb, uh, again, just puts more pressure on, on available rental stock and, and drives up rents there as well. Um, and, you know, I think, 
I'm not sure about even if we do have this kind of big Australia rapid migration policy, how quickly that does necessarily return. Mm-hmm. Um, there are still some travel limitations, not necessarily coming from Australia, but internationally with COVID. So um, overseas arrivals are sitting at about 30% of where they were pre-COVID. So it might take time for that to resume fully. But overall, I think that that stuff is, it, it's a positive for the housing market overall. Mm-hmm. But I think you know, one thing that is quite evident is that the trajectory of the market is heavily influenced by interest rates. And um, that means that we're sort of looking at the inflationary environment. We're looking at bank forecasts around not just how far the cash rate is going to go up, but when they're going to start to cut it again. Um, And and that's going to give a clearer picture of where the housing market is going. Um, At this stage, you've got the likes of forecasters at uh, Commonwealth Bank who are a little more confident that the cash rate won't peak as high, um, Mm -hmm. around 2.5%, and that the RBA will have to start cutting again in 2023. You've got um, some other forecasting houses suggesting that those cash rate cuts are going to be delivered in 2024. So when the cash rate starts to stabilize, that's when we'd expect a flaw in the in the downswing of the property market and would probably pick up from um, from when they start to be cut again. The, I think where it gets really interesting is where you consider the role of housing in its influence on um, you, you know, as a mechanism for the dissemination of, of rate rises and rate cuts, because even if people are thinking the RBA is going to go hard and fast for many, many months, we have record levels of household debt. And a lot of that is housing debt. So households might actually be more sensitive to rate rises. A lot of people have purchased recently. So the wealth effects of housing might also be more powerful in um you know, bringing down consumption and, and things like that. So speaking when of, you consider how... American, um, I mean, record levels of household debt in Australia, my understanding is that that's still pretty low compared to, say, the United States. Is that correct? Uh, I mean, it's over 100%. I think it's sitting at like 130% for um, housing debt to right. disposable household income. Okay. But, you know, interest rate rises, you, you focused in answering the question on you know, what's going to happen to interest rates, but interest rate rises, interest rates come and go, right? It, hopefully inflation comes and goes and I mean, maybe Australia will experience its first ever hyperinflation, but we all hope that won't happen. You know, at some point, these monetary factors must return to normal in some sense. These megatrends, though, might go on for 5, 10, 20 years. I mean, what do you see for these, the, the big trends? I mean, are, are these big trends ultimately going to be positive for Australia, Australia's housing prices, or are they ultimately going to settle down? I think they are a positive, um, at, but that's only being able to go off historic data. Um, okay. And looking at Australia as a, a popular international migration destination. Mm-hmm. Um, history tells us that, um, you know, Sydney and Melbourne are the big winners when it comes to overseas migration, and that Um, eventually internal migration flows lead to popular regional uh, centres, Geelong, um, Sunshine Coast, Gold Coast, 
um, and that eventually these spread into the next most viable, affordable um, amenity-filled market that's available. So, you know, I, I do think long-term um, Australian housing values will continue to rise, uh-huh. but that also has to be underpinned by stability in the lending space. Okay. Um, it has to... It, it would be underpinned by the assumption that we don't have another event like COVID or, or you know, major negative economic shocks. Right. Um, but the way things are going at the moment, I, I sort of see that being a, a long-term um, growth story for, for the Australian housing market. Right. Now, we have a question from the uh, CIS chief economist, Peter Tulip. Peter would like to ask you, the, the centerpiece of the new Labor government's housing policy is to create 30,000 social housing dwellings. What effect will this have on housing affordability? Yeah, thanks, Peter. Great question. Um, I mean, I can only imagine that it would ease the pressure on the private rental market and hopefully serve to bring rents down. That's my very basic supply and demand kind of understanding of, of how that would play out. Well, but does it? I mean, are, are they creating 30,000 social housing dwellings from scratch? Are these new builds or are, are these taking housing out of the existing market and making it available for low-income earners. I, I don't know much about the policy. Can you fill us in? No, I don't really have that detail of the policy either, to be honest. Um, and I, you'd have to imagine that in the current environment, if they're trying to establish new properties, that's going to be a massive challenge given the kind of record delays we're seeing between approvals and completion of resi dwellings at the moment. Right. We saw the New Zealand uh, Labor government come in a few years ago with the promise of 100,000 new dwellings. And I think they built something like 800. (laughs) So it's uh, more difficult to do than maybe it would seem. But getting back to policy then, or or, going further on the policy question, government policy is always talking about housing affordability, yet getting elected generally means keeping house prices up to keep your voters happy. Uh, How do we resolve this tension between the policy desirability of housing affordability and the personal desirability that my house should always go up? You know, I think that is a really good point and something that we kind of saw play out between the past few federal elections and the discourse around housing affordability. So if you looked at the, um, you know, 2019 election with Labor sort of campaigning on this platform to make changes to negative gearing and capital gains concessions, the idea being that this would help to bring houses down. But as they then started to say, not too much, Um, You know, uh, people argue that they kind of lost that election because they took this quite bold stance on housing affordability that was aimed at bringing house prices down. So that when we got the um, Liberal Party in power, we started to see these policies that reflected not necessarily housing affordability through bringing prices down, but housing accessibility through lowering the deposit hurdle. And it was so interesting to see the rhetoric around that change over the space of a few years. Um, There were some gaffes along the way, you know, some um, politicians, I think, seemed quite out of touch by saying, you know, you just need to get a good job that pays more money. 
or, you know, never mind some of what we've seen in the labour market with higher levels of casualization right. and until recently more wage stagnation and things like that. Um, and and I suppose in even in that um, uh, the the coalition's approach of uh, increasing accessibility, then you had um, Scott Morrison sort of saying, well, the way to avoid rising costs in the rental market is simply to buy. So um, it's definitely been one of those things mm -hmm. that, you know, it's been very hard to balance between the interest of rising property prices and, right. and affordability. The majority of Australians either own their home outright or have a mortgage. So I think the majority would, would still focus on that, um, you know, not wanting the asset to see a, a kind of crash in value. Right. Um, and I, I don't know that we've seen really bold reform um, offered by either major party in terms of, you know, we're, we're not getting a revolution. We're, we're getting these kind of smaller targeted policies that are taking people um, on lower incomes and maybe right. helping them get more secure housing or helping them attain home ownership. Mm. Not a bad thing, but yeah, not, not a revolution. Look, we need to wrap up in just a minute, but I, I can't resist asking you the most basic know-nothing question <laughs> that anyone could ask, which is that um, Australia's migration policy aims to bring in something like 200 to 250,000 new residents, net new residents every year. That means about 100,000 housing units, assuming, you know, two to three people per housing unit on average. Is Australia building 100,000 new housing units every year? Um, look, at the moment, there are a lot of pressures on the building industry, and it's taking longer than ever to get from that approval process to completion. So it is going to be a massive challenge. And I think, you know, bringing some of what we've talked about together, uh, one of the major areas of policy that, that probably needs to be focused on is just making sure that we can deliver those dwellings. Um, I, I don't know exactly how you manage that when some of it would be international factors that are out of control, but, you know, even diverting some of that new labor to construction or, um, yeah, just reviewing some of those planning and approval processes and, and making sure that that is quicker and more streamlined. I mean, do you have any, um, that I, I, do you have any at your fingertips data on how many new housing units are being built every year in Australia? I, I off the top of my head, I'm sorry, right. <laughs> but I know that the uh, ABS publishes the, um, right. you know, completions and yeah, so um, that's definitely when I should have looked up. All right, <laughs> no, no, final, final question, prognosis for the remainder of the year. When we come back to you at, at Christmas time, will housing prices <laughs> in Australia be, be higher, or lower, <laughs> higher or lower than they are today? Um, I, ooh, how long did we say? Christmas timeline end of year I think lower I think lower all right we'll hold you to that Eliza Eliza Owen thank you very much for joining <laughs> us today great thanks so much thanks also to our producer Nico Malian the director of the Center for Independent Studies is Tom Switzer I'm Salvatore Babonis thank you for watching on Liberty <laughs>